You're listening to Channel Africa, and we're currently on the frequency 9.625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. In the headline, 60 South Sudanese soldiers appear before a court-martial for alleged crimes committed during last month's fighting in the capital, Juba. Zimbabwean opposition parties concerned President Robert Mugabe could soon declare a state of emergency. And South Africa's ruling ANC Youth League in the Eastern Cape Province, MAM on reports it's calling for the removal of President Jacob Zuma. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Moussam. Sixty South Sudanese soldiers have been tried before a court-martial for alleged crimes committed during last month's fighting in the capital, Juba. Army spokesperson Brigadier General Lul Rohoi Kaong says the military is waiting for presidential approval before revealing the exact number of those convicted and their sentences. None of the soldiers were charged with rape despite many reported incidents of sex attacks by government soldiers on civilians and aid workers. At least 300 people were killed in the latest violence and more than 60,000 forced to flee the country. Zimbabwean opposition parties have expressed concern that President Robert Mugabe could soon declare a state of emergency in a bid to stop increasing violent protests. According to Newsday, Mugabe's spokesperson suggested in a piece published in state media over the weekend that the president could throw away the constitution and declare a state of emergency, this to deal with the continued protests following violent scenes that rocked the center of Harare on Friday. Tanzania's government has temporarily banned two radio stations for allegedly insulting the government by inciting violence. The Minister of Information, Culture, Arts and Sports in Tanzania says the stations breach the law of information that governs freedom of press. Gabriel Zakaria reports from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. The popular Magic FM radio station based in Dar es Salaam and Radio 5, which broadcast from Arusha, have been banned for an unspecified period for what the minister says is the breach of conduct that governs freedom of the media in Tanzania. The minister's decision comes a few weeks after the government, through the same minister, banned the weekly newspaper Mseto for publishing what it mentioned as false information as tension rises ahead of countrywide rallies planned by the opposition party for Thursday this week. South Africa's ruling ANC Youth League in the Eastern Cape Province has neither confirmed or denied reports it's calling for the removal of President Jacob Zuma from office. This follows an ANC Youth League General Council meeting in East London on Sunday. ANC Youth League spokesperson Ayonge Zwalungisa says the meeting focused on, among other issues, what led to the decline of the ANC in urban areas in the recent local government elections. Uh, as of now, we can't disclose as yet what was the position of branches of ACT up until we arrive in the National Executive Committee because uh, we don't want to contaminate uh, the space as of yet, but uh, we want to give the National Executive Committee of the ANC League uh, sufficient space to come up uh, with a solid uh, sober decision on what must happen from now going forward. So you are basically saying that you can neither confirm nor deny the call? Yes, we can confirm nor deny the call as of yet, 
but want to give a position to the leadership of the National Executive Committee. And finally, Professor Gustav Olson from Sweden has called on all professionals to go to primary schools in South Africa and teach children the value of water. He says this can also help identify different ways of saving water. Currently, South Africa is facing a water crisis due to various factors, such as a lack of rainfall. The recent drought that hit the country also contributed to the shortage of water. Olson was speaking at a panel discussion on water crisis at the university of Johannesburg. The kids, they have a fresh mind, they listen, they have no traditions and they are so absorbing ideas and they come home and they teach their parents how to behave. I think you have to repeat this on a regular level from the first grade up so that people can understand the value of the water, also that they understand what happens when you flush the toilet. Recapping the top story, 60 South Sudanese soldiers appear before a court-martial for alleged crimes committed during last month's fighting in the capital, Juba. Zimbabwean opposition parties concerned President Robert Mugabe could soon declare a state of emergency and South Africa's ruling ANC Youth League in the Eastern Cape Province, Mum, on reports it's calling for the removal of President Jacob Zuma. African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue. Thank you for joining us and welcome to you who's listening to us on our shortwave service on the 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Remember, you can join us on DSTV. We are on Channel 802 on the audio bouquet there. Uh, today, we are broadcasting live right here at the Gallagher Estate, just uh, in Midrand, not so far away from Johannesburg. And uh, we are hoping Hosted by the Intelligence Transfer Center, we have the second annual Peacekeeping and Logistics Africa Conference. And we are proud to say we were also at the first one last year, which was a very informative space to be in with the conversations that are taking place here uh, with the experts that are attending. Uh, the theme this year is a very interesting one. It's titled Enforcing Conformity and Collaboration as a Joint Forces Initiative. And uh, today we joined uh, in our outside broadcast right here in this beautiful uh, uh, facility. We have uh, uh, Major uh, Chris Buckham who is uh, a training officer at the Logistics Heads of Training Support at the International Peace Support Training Center. We also have the opportunity to have uh, His Excellency uh, Philip Bajada Natana who is the Ambassador of the Embassy of the Republic of South Sudan in South Africa. And lastly but not least we have uh, Dr. Norman uh, Sambija who is uh, from 
Uganda, but is based chair as part of his postdoctoral fellowship at the Department of International Relations at the University of Witwatersrand. So we have a lot to cover uh, today to look at what does this theme mean? What are we talking about when we're speaking about enforcing uh, conformity and collaboration as a joint forces initiative? Let's start the conversation with you, Major Chris Buck, and we know that you've already started speaking about the differentiation between peace enforcement and peacekeeping. Tell us a little bit about uh, what does the theme for this year actually mean for you personally? Well, thank you for uh, the opportunity to uh, to join you today. The uh, Certainly, the from us, from an International Peacekeeping Support Training Center perspective, it gives us the opportunity to uh, to discuss with our uh, colleagues across Pan Africa sure. and to uh, to see what the reality is of of their individual situations out in the out, out in the field and to uh, to use that information to help uh, drive the the conversation and also to uh, to look at how we can better engage uh, Pan Africa, mm. Saharan and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, in, in ensuring that our way forward is uh, is uh, beneficial to uh, the regional and, and the folks on the ground. Mm. So tell us a little bit about that theme itself that you were covering, differentiating between peace enforcement and peacekeeping. What are the differences? Because as an ordinary person, I would think they're kind of related. But it seems like you... Uh, separating them in your discussion today or your talk today yeah the uh the language is very important mm-hmm. uh the uh when we're looking at a, a peacekeeping operation the uh the three main themes of a peacekeeping operation from a traditional sense is the uh the ability to uh to uh that you are impartial mm-hmm. that you are a um a divider between two uh distinct entities uh, nation states normally and that you are um, subject to uh, to um, the very specific rules of engagement in that. Sure. The, um, however, from a peace enforcement perspective, uh, this is uh, something that has developed out of the post-Cold War period and uh, often involves the uh, imposition of UN forces as opposed to the request of UN forces into an environment. And for the most part, those would be intrastate type of operations, and meaning within a nation state itself as opposed to between two nation states. So the, uh, as an example, uh, since uh, 1990, mm-hmm. we've had uh, well over uh, 55 uh, uh, conflicts internationally. Uh, 53, 52, excuse me, of those are intrastate. So we've changed the whole nature of warfare from uh, the traditional between countries to within or between entities or organizations within countries. Mm. Well, let me come to you, uh, Ambassador, Ambassador of the Republic of South Sudan, South Africa, uh, Philip Jadanatana. It's great to finally meet you face to face. You always make yourself available to Channel Africa. So it's fantastic to be speaking to you face to face today. Um, let's look at just what we're looking at. And we've always looked at the challenge of speaking to you of South Sudan and the civil strife that we actually are encountering in uh, Africa's youngest country. In terms of the issue of peacekeeping and, and logistics Africa, why do you think as South Sudan it's central for you to be part of that conversation? Well, first of all, thank you very much for this opportunity, of course, to you know sit with you across the table for the first time. I've sure. been here on Channel Africa several times, and it's always um, a pleasure to be on air on, on Channel Africa. Um, as you already said, you know, South Sudan is the youngest nation uh, in the country and uh, faced with, with challenges, and which mainly stem from conflict. And um, as you are probably aware, we have um, more than 12,000 
uh, UN forces that are already present in South Sudan. That's in addition to, that's besides the 4,000 that you have around ABA and we're still debating about maybe another 4,000 coming inside, you know. Mm. So I think for these operations to be successful in South Sudan, I think this, the theme of this conference for us is very important so that we can have um, uh, a discussion on uh, actually um, how um, these forces will be operating in South Sudan. Um, as has already been mentioned, the conflict that we have here is an... Um, interstate um, conflict sure. uh, in which we are not only dealing with, with forces, which are government forces, but we're dealing with oppositions which are malicious, not, not trained. Yeah. And, um, and several times uh, there they, they seems to be an understand, a misunderstanding uh, between us and the, and the UN and, and because of blames that happened and apportioned to both of us as equally. And uh, we usually don't uh, tend to agree with that. And this is a, actually a new phenomenon because if sure. you still recall from 2005, we have been, we had very good relations with, with the UN and uh, until about 2011 because they were dealing with us and we came from an experience of, of course, an insurgency and a guerrilla movement, but with about 20 years of experience, we know the rules of engagement. So what is happening now actually is a new phenomenon, and that's why I think we need to sit down with the UN and say what has gone wrong. You know, after mm -hmm. we have been cooperating for the last 10 years, and all of a sudden, in, in a few months, when we have these new dynamics, what's gone wrong? And that's why we need a dialogue. We'll come to that about relationships in terms of uh, the independence of a country and also enabling uh, that United Nations element to come into, especially in uh, civil strife. But let me come to you and bring you in, Dr. Norman uh, Sambija, in terms of the issues of this very complex issue of peacekeeping is not as simple uh, as was highlighted by both our guests. There's so many dynamics to it. And I know that you're going to highlight what peacekeeping leaves behind evaluating multidimensional peace operations in Africa, that peacekeeping actually has kind of ref reformations. It actually has um, uh, con consequences to it. Yeah. I'm interested in that notion. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. Thanks very much uh, for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, basically, what we're looking at, I'm um, researching basically this thing with uh, Dr. Malta Brosig. Mm. And so we're looking at the impact of peacekeeping or the effectiveness of peacekeeping uh, in many different Af African countries. And as you know, uh, Africa is the biggest consumer of peacekeeping operations. And uh, as Chris was saying, we've moved on from traditional peacekeeping whereby peacekeepers had to be invited in. Yes. And now we have aspects of uh, peace enforcement. Mm. And we're looking at the effectiveness of peacekeeping over a period of time, uh, involving rule of law, human security, uh, infrastructure, and all that. Because uh, peacekeeping these days uh, is very multidimensional. You know, it's no longer separating combatants, but also looking at the demobilization, disarmament, uh, protecting of uh, key in infrastructure and uh, so many other things. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we look at basically how effective or has it been effective in basically achieving this. And um, we basically look at uh, countries like Burundi, Sierra Leone, uh, Central African Republic. We look at uh, DR Congo, Cent um, Ivory Coast, Liberia. Mm -hmm. It's like eight countries altogether. And uh, we look at the challenges that actually uh, peacekeepers are facing or the UN is facing, especially things with a mandate. Mm. Uh, because if you're basically carrying out peace enforcement, then you're going to be less effective 
maybe in infrastructure or in education or in health because you're looking at mainly bringing about the peace. But for missions like in Liberia, Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, they came in when there was the peace to keep. And so they've had some kind of like uh, improvement, basically in participation, in gender, human rights. We, we have seen a bit of improvement over a period of time. But in the DR Congo, in uh, Central African Republic, these are very, very uh, challenging uh, missions for them. And so that's the basically that's basically our study, and we use the Mo Ibrahim index uh, to basically look at uh, the trajectory of uh, these achievements over time or non-achievements. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to come back to those issues, and I think we'll come into that issue of uh, you know who has the kind of the autonomy when it comes to uh, the issue of peace, who actually has the uh, big voice when it comes to that, because I know on the African continent with this whole idea of countries trying to uh, maintain the autonomy. There's a huge discussion around uh, who is allowed to come in, who's allowed to stay in, and uh, when do they come out of those particular countries, and why do they actually leave those countries at a particular time? And uh, maybe those are some of the challenges that South Sudan has had. But we're going to go back to our Johannesburg studios. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with our guests. Change your game. your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10.45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, today, uh, Channel Africa is partnering with uh, the Intelligence Transfer Center. Uh, they're an organization that's actually uh, really facilitating big dialogues that have to do with the continent of Africa. And last year, we were at the first uh, Peacekeeping and Logistics uh, Africa conference. And today, today we're back here, and uh, we at the second annual conference. And the theme this year is Enforcing Conformity and Collaboration as a Joint Forces Initiative. You just joined us. Uh, we joined by uh, the ambassador of the Republic of South Sudan and South Africa, His Excellency Philip Jada Natana. We also have uh, uh, the training officer of logistics, head of training support at the International Peace Support Training Center, that's uh, Major Chris Buckham. And also we have uh, Dr. Norman Zimbija, who's originally from Uganda. He's here in South Africa for the post-doctoral fellowship at the Department of International Relations, University of Witwatersrand. Now, I want to come back to that big debate of uh, kind of the, the, the power struggle within this whole peacekeeping and logistics conversation, because sometimes we run away from that. And I know there's a huge mandate on the United Nations, but that's where sometimes the big discussion is. And, and let me bring that to you to start this part of the conversation. Uh, His Excellency Philippe Jadon-Natana, in terms of peacekeeping and uh, peace enforcement, 
Do you think that in terms of uh, global politics that we're getting it right? Well, I think, uh, first of all, when we, we actually try to answer this question, we, start, we need to start on the premise that, you know, South Sudan is a member of the United Nations and it's a sovereign nation. And um, so any um, peacekeeping operation that is done in South Sudan is, also, is done mostly with the consent of, um, uh, of, of the country itself as a member of the United Nations sure. because we affirm to some norms and we are supposed to abide by that. But we get into situations of conflict that you see this, there are always abnormalities and I think people should not be more focused on that and I think they, they, the understanding should be actually of how you want to help the country that is in need, instead of just trying to dictate them. And that's where sometimes relations get out of hand. Mm. Tell us, let's elaborate on those abnormalities. On which level are they on? Um, where would the main disagreements be in, in that regard? Well, uh, the recent thing that I think has been uh, a subject of debate, I think, um, between, the, between the UN and, and, and South Sudan, um, is um, the proposal for the um, deployment of additional forces, you know, and um, um, if you were following very well, that, that suggestion first came from, from, from the region, from IGAD, mm -hmm. and then the African Union, of course, uh, seconded it. But then uh, questions started coming out about the mandate of these forces. Okay. Is it going to be um, an intervention force? Is it going to be, um, is it going to be um, a protection force? You know, and uh, the question that we have been asking as a government is that, okay, if this is going to be a protection force, what would the aim of this force, which is 4,000, what would it be able to do that 12,000, for example, have not been able to do? You know, mm -hmm. these are just questions, you know, and I think it's not meant really to rattle uh, people and, you know, get the UN irritated or all the other countries and then being viewed as as if though we are opposed for this. I think uh, when the forces come, then they need to come with a very clear mandate so that we don't go into square one again by saying that 12,000 are not able to do anything because maybe there was some kind of gray areas on what their mandate actually are going to, uh, to be. You know? mm -hmm. So as a government, it's not that we are opposed to deployment of additional forces, but I think they need to come out with a very clear mandate, and I think it should not just be an issue of really arguing about semantics and the meaning of the language of what this is supposed to be and what this is not supposed to be. And I think this is where we really wanted to be understood. And the agreement, initial agreement, was that after we agreed as a government that these forces may have to come, the original, the, the initial uh, agreement was that the chief of staff of eager countries was supposed to come to Juba and, and meet and mm -hmm. so that we can agree about the mandate. But then this proposal was quickly rushed to the UN and then even people came out with numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, let me come to you, uh, Major Chris Buckingham, in terms of the issue of uh, the mandate on peacekeeping forces and, and also maybe that enforcement. How important is the area of mandates well mandate is the fundamental i mean sure. that is the basis upon which you deploy upon which you operate upon which your rules of engagement are developed and uh, and extrapolated from so it it is absolutely critical that a mandate be clear and concise as to what the role of either a peace i mean we use the language of peacekeeping peace enforcement operation the, whatever the, the UN intervention is, okay. in whatever capacity it is, sure. the mandate is the, the building block upon which it operates.
Mm. And in terms of, are there different forms of mandates that could be given to an intervention? Or do they fall under different categories? Just for the ordinary person listening to us on, on radio right now, maybe they don't understand what we're talking about when we're speaking about these mandates. Isn't there just one mandate, peacekeeping? Yeah, no, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a good question. And, uh, and clearly, uh, it, it does uh, cause some confusion when you're talking about peacekeeping, but in different contexts. Sure. So if you're operating in the traditional sense of peacekeeping, where you have two uh, defined nation states, recognized nation states that are at war. For example, on the island of Cyprus, you have uh, a Turkish side and a, and a Greek side, and you have a, a UN force in between those two organizations. The, um, however, in a peace enforcement environment, the, uh, it's much more complex and much more nuanced. Okay. And the reason being is because the, the, the forces inside is operating in, as the ambassador was indicating, is operating both with the, uh, a, traditionally a, a sitting government plus a series of organizations or uh, entities that may be operating against that government. Sure. So in a Somali environment, for example, you have Al-Shabaab, you have uh, the uh, autonomous region in Puntland, etc., etc., mm. and you have a government of Somalia. Mm. So the, uh, it's, it's a much more nuanced, and the nature of the operation is quite a bit different. It's mm. much more assertive. It's much more robust in terms of, of the mandate in a peace enforcement operation. Mm. And, and coming back to you, um, uh, Dr. Norman uh, Sambisa, your thoughts around where we are with the discussion, it's very nuanced and very diverse. And for me as a civilian, I'm kind of like, wow, is it this complex? Is it this um, nuanced as was highlighted uh, by uh, uh, the, the major there? Yeah, uh, basically, peacekeeping has had to evolve uh, mm. since the end of the Cold War. And as uh, Major Chris was talking about earlier on, and... Um, uh, we have to protect civilians. Basically, that's one of the main mandate that most peacekeeping missions have, mm. humanitarian assistance. And uh, the challenge that they face is uh, coming into a country where they have a sitting government and you're not invited. But at the same time, you want to protect civilians because now we have responsibility to protect. And so how do you go about that? Mm. And so the UN has developed this multidimensional uh, mandate whereby although most of the missions actually have looked at in Africa have monitoring ceasefire, meaning that there's a peace to keep, there are situations whereby there's no peace to keep. Mm -hmm. But you need to protect the civilians because, uh, I mean, Kofi Annan talked about it uh, when he was inaugurating R2P, responsibility to protect. And so now we need to have uh, a, basically a space for protection of civilians. And that's why sometimes you have peacekeepers going in uh, sometimes uh, they're fighting forces who are not part to the peace agreement, as we had in the DRC. Uh, I think 1999, uh, they had a peace agreement and wanted to keep some people out. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have, I think, the entire Hamway who are still in the forest somewhere there. And so the UN is actually engaged in uh, fighting these forces. Mm -hmm. And so that's the challenge that peacekeeping uh, basically had, had to address today. Mm -hmm. Because uh, as we were talking about internal conflicts, you have uh, a multiplicity of actors. You have people who are against the government. Then uh, the rebels themselves may have splinter groups within them. You know, somebody may break off and say, now I'm opposing you. Mm -hmm. And so the UN, uh, if the UN is there separate to combatant groups, then it's facing a third party. And so they need to have the mandate to deal with that. And I think this was also very important in 2003 when we had the conflict in Ituri, where the, inter uh, sorry, the, the Heyman lenders were fighting. 
And so the UN was caught in between because the forces were not uh, equipped. The Uruguayan forces were there were not equipped to actually deal with uh, a humanitarian crisis like that, to deal with people killing each other and all that, because they were there to guard. Mm -hmm. And so they had to change the mandate of the UN to have a peace enforcement aspect mm -hmm. and to be able to engage with these forces to protect civilians. Because what happened with the UN there, they just went back into their uh, base mm -hmm. and they took on as many people as they could, but they could not engage uh, with the forces that were, you know, killing other people and so that's a challenge they face over time and uh, I think that's why today we talk about peace enforcement and so even for Sudan, Sudan is being pushed, Southern Sudan is being pushed to accept more peacekeepers, to have more peace enforcement because they bring that aspect of protection of civilians. Well can I ask you a question when it comes to South Sudan, do you yeah. think the issue of peacekeeping should be a discussion that South Sudan is having, should it be politicized? Uh, I mean, we, we talk, okay, we need to talk about civilians first of all are they going to be protected? Mm. You need to have humanitarian assistance for the civilians mm. because they are caught in between two groups which are, killing, uh, which are fighting each other for power. And so uh, as a civilian, basically, most of the time we have refugees streaming to other countries mm. and uh, most of them are caught in between and they're killed. Mm. And so mm. it is the mandate of the UN to make sure that civilians are protected. And um, it becoming a political issue. I think there are so many forces, there are so many interests at play here mm. because, I mean... I mean, I, may, I mean, we had, for example, China sending in peacekeepers. Yeah, yeah. And people are asking, why is China actually sending peacekeepers all of a sudden? Because yeah, yeah. they have not been part of the peacekeeping uh, apparatus for, sure. for a long time. Is it Chinese interest in uh, South Sudan? And so, yes, it becomes a bit of a politicized issue, you know, in a way. But I think the main focus should be, yes, separate the combatants and protect civilians. And then we can deal with the peace settlement. Let the negotiations begin. But the problem also we've had is that the two parties have had, it, have had difficulties in reaching an agreement. Mm. And so when you inject peacekeepers in there, it's becoming difficult for them. But they, ha they have to be there. Mm. I mean, like Chris was talking about peace enforcement, because we need to protect civilians. But that's the challenge they face, that the two parties are not yet to that point uh, whereby they're willing to actually reach a peaceful settlement. And so... Yes, yeah, it's, it's a challenge, but also it's a big bit of a political issue. Yeah. Uh, coming to you, uh, your ambassador, in terms of uh, that politicization of, uh, as we wrap it up with you, the politicization of peacekeeping, is it becoming more political over time and time, intentions of why peacekeepers are coming in, why are we having countries like China? We know we've had this huge conversation of France as well and peacekeepers in Africa. It's a huge conversation, isn't it, for our continent? Yeah, first of all, um, you know, since this conflict started in South Sudan and every report that I've read from the UN uh, where civilians have come under fire, whether directly or indirectly, actually holds the government responsible. And it says clearly in no uncertain terms that the primary responsibility of the government is the protection of the civilians. Sure. So if something happens to the civilians, it's first the government which is accountable. Okay. So therefore, what does it underline? It underlines that when the UN come, they are actually supposed to work in cooperation with the government mm -hmm. that, that is there, as uh, you know, like uh, in our case in the government of South Sudan, sure. to see that these uh, civilians are protected. Now, if we run into questions of maybe civilians being targeted, and I think, and that's, that's what we and the UN also agree with, there must be a very a proper investigation of how did it actually happen. Is it, is, it, is it really government soldiers who targeted those civilians or people who purported to be um, uh, uh, government soldiers? And if that uh, targeting also happened, 
what is the response of the government? Did they actually react to try to, to try to bring the situation under control and the UN that are there actually who are mandated to protect the civilians in case they don't intervene on time? What were the reasons that could have done there? So I think there's a lot of elements of, of really cooperation. So we shouldn't be focusing about the politicization of the whole process, okay. but I think that we have a common agenda, both the UN and the government, to see that uh, civilians are protected. Well, thank you so much to you, uh, Your Excellency. That's Philip Jadanathan, Ambassador of uh, the Republic of South Sudan in South Africa. We know that you have a conversation to uh, address right now in about 15 minutes. He'll be speaking about grasping Africa... African solution for African issues. Thank you, Ambassador, for giving us your time. And we're going to stay with our other guests and continue this conversation as we wrap it up. The Intelligence Transfer Center will be hosting the second Peacekeeping and Logistics Africa Conference on the 30th and the 31st of August 2016 at Galaga Estates in Midrand, South Africa. Stakeholders in Peacekeeping and Logistics Africa will be meeting on a common ground to discuss not only reactive but preventative measures in promoting peace in Africa. Organizations in attendance include the South African Government, a Government's Ministry of Home Affairs, International Peace Support to Training Center, the South African National Defense Force, the South African Air Force, representatives of the Tanzanian Embassy in South Africa, the Zambian Defense and Army, TALIS, South Africa Systems, the South African Department of Defense, Armscore and the Parliament of South Africa to name but a few. Catch Channel Africa's African Dialogue broadcasting live from the conference between 11 to 1200 hours Central African time on both days. For more information, please email bookings at intelligencetransfers.co.za or call Plus two seven zero one one three two six two five zero one. Channel Africa. What the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, uh, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And uh, uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're partnering up as Channel Africa with the Intelligence Transfer Center. Uh, we're at the second annual Peacekeeping and Logistics Africa Conference. Uh, if you're joining us right now, the theme is Enforcing Conformity and Collaboration as a Joint Forces Initiative. We're outside our Johannesburg studios. We've moved it outside with our broadcast here uh, at the venue of Gallagher Estate and uh, staying with me for our conversation is uh, Major Chris uh, Buckham who is a training officer at the Logistics Head of uh, Training Support uh, which is part of the International Peace Support Training Center and we also have Dr. Norman Sambija who is uh, joining us uh, from the Department of International Relations University of Advertisement uh, postdoctoral fellowship there. Um, you know I want to talk about some of the areas that you spoke about, uh, Major Buckham, which are very true. You were speaking about the fact that, you know, peacekeeping and peace enforcement it does not really deal with the root issues of uh, uh, political problems or strife within countries. And I think we should make that clear right now. 
Yeah, the, uh, it is critical for people to understand that uh, a peace enforcement or a peacekeeping operation is not an end in and of itself. Sure. The, um, it is, uh, it, it's designed to, to, uh, to stabilize an environment or create an environment whereby movement can be made forward in other areas. Uh, the, uh, the doctor has indicated uh, the, uh, the extent of the mandate and the expansion of the mandate beyond the traditional standing the line between, two, uh, between warring factions. And that is true. Although the nature of our business, the nature of peace enforcement and peacekeeping is, uh, while it in involves disarmament and it involves uh, protection of civilians, and that it does not it does not engage in political change. Okay. And really, this is what uh, is the critical issue from my perspective in terms of uh, the African challenge, which is the level of corruption in a lot of countries. Corruption is the uh, the catalyst which drives. Uh, instability within nation states, mm -hmm. and the uh, it, I, I think that is a, a a dialogue that we're not spending enough time discussing, mm -hmm. and and recognizing the elephant in the room, mm -hmm. no pun intended. Sure. <laughs> well, your your thoughts there on uh, what uh, uh, the major is highlighting, Doctor? Yeah, I mean, w when we go to our study that we've been having uh, concerning the impact of peacekeeping over time, we found that actually uh, things like rule of law, you know basically it's been a plateau or if you look at the statistics it has not been improving and so i mean maybe that can can dovetail into his argument that uh dimensional peacekeeping actually uh is not really okay it's kind of like deals with the symptoms not the root cause yeah also if you look at things like infrastructure health education welfare you know there's not so much change but what we've seen that peacekeeping actually has had an impact on participation uh, because most of the time when peacekeepers come in, after a period of time, they organize elections. And then after the elections, then most likely they phase out, they move out. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, for some missions like in the DRC, it's not very soon. They're not going to move out soon. Mm -hmm. And they organized elections in 2006. And uh, right now we still have, I mean, a few problems, a few sticking problems. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I mean, I could agree with him on that. But at the same time, when you talk about peacekeeping, it has become this broad concept, you know, and uh, it has moved into so many areas. And uh, we need also to begin to see how effective it, it is in providing a climate uh, to basically have maybe rule of law or uh, for health or for education or things like that. Does peacekeeping provide a platform for that? If at all we have peacekeepers in the country, are they going to provide the environment uh, for such things to thrive? But also we need to look at the, maybe the role of the government. If you have a new government in power, how are they going to actually manage these things? Because, I mean, he's talked about corruption. Also the, the budget, if you look at the budget, the expenditure. If a government uh, is elected into power with peacekeepers in the country, you know, what are the, what are the priority areas? What are the areas they're going to prioritize? Because education, health may not be part of the agenda. They may be talking about uh, the next election. You know, we've gone into power five years. We need to plan to be able to, you know, to stay in power. And so that actually negatively affects uh, the, the overall impact of uh, peacekeeping in the long run. Yeah. I don't know. That's, a, that's an interesting view. But I, I never thought peacekeeping could be like that. I don't know if you're being very futuristic here, Doctor. <laughs> I can <laughs> see Major Chris Buckham giving you a look here. Do you think if there's a possibility you have that kind of complementary force kind of looking at different elements of peace? Well, not not peacekeepers or peace enforcement uh, entities in and of themselves. Maybe the, humanitarian agencies so, during the 
period. I don't know. Yeah, well, the the, the reality is is that the uh, we have to keep in mind that peace enforcement or peacekeeping operations entail uh, two primary agencies, uh, the uh, police and military. Sure. And it is not the role of those entities to to get into government function and to get into development of other of other agencies. So we have to make sure that the dialogue is and the paradigm is maintained, okay. the and the focus is maintained. The uh, certainly the uh, you work in conjunction with NGO, World Health Organizations, UNHCRs, those or, those entities that will facilitate what the doctor was referring to in terms of development of capacity, capacity building within governance, good governance, etc. But the nature of the peacekeeper themselves, uh, the military, the military individual coming in, and, and the the mission that they are undertaking is not to build those things. It is that is not their role. Their role is to is to provide an environment of stability within which those things can flourish. So the. Uh, whether or not we look in the future and say, well, a, a peace enforcement operation or a peacekeeping operation uh, is, is uh, what, they are, what they are mandate is ultimately going to end up being, the one area that you will not see them exp- expose or expand into is those purely civilian agencies, those civilian, the, those civilian functions sure. outside of what we, uh, you know, the military component of it, security mm. component yeah. of it. Well. Yeah, that, that's a different, I mean, that's a very stringent way of, of, of looking at it, and that's the way it, it, it is. Yeah. Your thoughts as, as we wrap it up? Yeah, um, if you look at, uh, for example, peacekeeping like in the DRC, we have uh, different components. We also have the civilian component. So we have the peace, uh, we have the military force, uh, for example, that engages uh, what sometimes we refer to as the negative elements, you know, in the East. Mm. But also we do have the civilian component. Uh, we have people who are dealing with the rule of law. We have people who are dealing with the justice system because uh, what they were trying to do is to build a state, you know, in the neoliberal perspective. Kind of like you come in, you have the civilian component, they train the police, they train the soldiers. Uh, I was there, honestly, doing my research, I came across uh, the EU, uh, basically working alongside the UN in the security sector reform. Uh, they're trying to separate the chain of command from the chain of payment in the DRC because what would happen in the DRC is that the generals would pay their soldiers. And so that kind of like made, made it difficult to have a unified unit, a unified okay. army. Mm-hmm. And so what the UN and the EU are trying to do there is basically to go into the army and try to restructure it. Mm. And so that is, again, an aspect of state building. We have the police unit, which will basically training the police. Mm. And so they're trying to build the state from down up. Mm. But also they, were, they had the rule of law component whereby they they also look at the laws and all that and try to guide, basically, the new government. Mm. And so, I mean, that is kind of like the holistic approach that uh, the UN is trying to employ in uh, peacekeeping because they're saying, yes, it's no longer just separating combatants. Also, we need to get involved in state building to make sure that the state is viable after we leave. When we go away, we need to leave the state in good condition so that we don't have to come back. And so that's why they kind of like... Uh, move into some of these areas which are not traditionally theirs. Mm. And so that is uh, basically as we, we see in peacekeeping today. Yeah. Well, we have to wrap it up. Final sentiments from you, Major? Well, I think that uh, it's, it's a very dynamic environment that we find ourselves in. And certainly, the, uh, the, uh, the pe- I, I've done peacekeeping operations as far back as 1995. Oh. The, the peacekeepers and the peace enforcers of today of a far more difficult and far more challenging environment to operate in. Mm. But there is room for, uh, for uh, optimism 
in terms of the way forward. But we must address, and I'm going to close my, my thoughts on this, we must address the issue of governance and corruption, yeah. certainly within the African context, sure. before we anticipate any movement forward. Mm. Your, your final mm. sentiments, Doctor? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with him. Mm. I mean, if you look at Burundi, for example, I mean, it has been peaceful for the last, what, 10 years? And then all of a sudden, we're going back where we were before and so we have not dealt with the political question also and so such, such things actually pull pull us back and so it negatively affects uh, the impact of peacekeeping yeah so we need to be able to address governance and things like corruption yeah, well I, I was hoping that you would have said these things when the ambassador was here <laughs> <laughs> but that's how we're gonna wrap it up yeah. uh, thank you to both of our guests major yeah. chris Buckham, who is uh, the training officer of logistics heads of training support from the international peace support training center thank you as well to dr norman sambija who is uh, joining us i hope you're enjoying south africa and you stay how long have you been here for uh it's coming to two years oh fantastic well yeah. you won of us now so yeah, yeah this is home for you uh, he's doing his post uh, part of the postdoctoral fellowship at the department of international relations at the university of witwatersrand thank you both for giving us your time it's been fantastic great opportunity to speak both, to yeah, both thank of you. you very much You're well welcome. that's how we wrap it up here back to our johannesburg studios Good morning, I'm Wissani Matebula. With your economics news, uh, South African Airways uh, says efforts are at an advanced stage to help it meet its working expenditure and to save its, its debt. This follows a request issued by National Carrier for a long-term funding proposal. SAA says it needs funding by the end of October. Spokesperson Pladitladi. One of the possible solutions that was identified was in the area of debt consolidation. And in simplest of forms, it means that we have too many out there whom we owe. So what we need to do is to approach one individual to say, please give us 16 billion rent in the form of loan so that we are able to pay because the loans that we have are attracting varying interest rates. So for us to be able to negotiate a much more favorable interest rate, Let's consolidate this debt so that we owe one individual and we are able to negotiate a favorable interest rate. When all pressure is mounting on the airline to release its financial reports or face having its plans grounded, SAA has not released its financial statements for two years. SAA spokesperson, Tladi Tladi. The company is not in the best state of health. And for us to be able to finalize our annual financial statement, we need to have a going concern, a government guarantee. And we have since made an application with the shareholder representative, the National Treasury, and we await a response in this regard. Once we receive a response on the matter, we should be able to move forward. The questions have been asked as to whether the lenders out there will be able to come to the party. They have indicated the interest in providing us with the assistance that we require because they are aware of what the situation is. Tunisia, which is Tunisia's state-owned carrier, plans to lay off 1,000 employees or more than 12% of its full-time workforce 
as part of reform plans. The Transport Minister, Ennis Guderia, says Tunis Air reforms were planned months ago as part of a program. The airline made an agreement with major unions to reduce costs and improve competitiveness. As part of a broader reform, the Tunisian government is seeking to curb the large losses incurred by state-owned companies, which last year amounted to 1.5 billion U.S. dollars. Kenya's commercial bank has become the second lender to reduce its cost of uh, loans to 14.5%. Its decision puts more pressure on the major lenders in the country. The decision is to reduce interest rates differs from last week's position by Kenya Bankers Association that uh, banks were to wait direction from the regulator first. VW is reviewing its supplier and procurement strategy to avoid another crippling dispute like the one that caused production slowdowns and even stoppages at six plants this month. CEO Matthias Muller says uh, VW suppliers, car trim and ES Automobile Gas, both uh, part of uh, Bosnia's prevent group, triggered the disruptions earlier this month by halting deliveries of seat covers and cast iron parts for gearboxes. A similar escalation of disputes with other suppliers is less likely since VW's partners tend to be members of VDA, Germany's Auto Industry Association, and follow an agreed code of conduct for resolving disagreements. Financial indicators now the US dollar trading at fourteen three eight South African rents at ten point sixty Botswana Pula nine point seven seven Zambian Kwacha and also at zero point seven six to the British pound. Looking at the commodities gold one thousand three hundred and twenty three dollars, platinum one thousand seventy four dollars per fine ounce, Brent crude oil as hovering at forty nine dollars forty three cents per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. day to sports fans once again all over Africa and the world. If you have just tuned in, welcome. Three top officials of Kenya's Olympic Committee have been arrested in Nairobi as investigations dig into a series of scandals and embarrassments that engulfed Team Kenya at the Rio Olympics. Francis Paul, Secretary General of the National Olympic Committee of Kenya, was arrested on Friday. His deputy James Chacha and Stephen Arab Soy, who headed the Kenya delegation to Rio, were both arrested at the Nairobi airport just as they returned from Brazil Games. The men are being held at a police station in northeastern Nairobi and will be charged for their chaotic management and alleged theft of official sports gear. The Kenyan government on August 18 ordered the probe into the allegations. Casta Semenya is close to winning the women's 800-meter accolade in the 2016 IAAF Diamond League Series, which will finish in Brussels next Friday, the 9th of September. But before that, the South African 800-meter Olympic champion will compete in the second-last 14 Diamond League Series in Zurich, Switzerland, on Thursday night. Our correspondent, Geshob Nyati, has the story. Kasta Semenya is the current Diamond League race leader in the 800 meters with a total of 40 points, two points ahead of Francine Nyosaba of Burundi. 
Semenya started the season on a high, winning the first leg of the series in Qatar early in May. She was unstoppable in the following events held in Morocco, Italy and Monaco, collecting maximum 10 points for a win. In Thursday's race in Brussels, Semenya is close to winning $40,000 for being the best runner in the series over the Tulip event, but provided she beats the Burundian champion Niosaba. Other competitors in the race, Lindsay Sharp of England, Eunice Sum of Kenya and Habitam Alemo of Ethiopia are way down on points to catch up with Niosaba and Semenya. Another South African Wade Van Ekek, a 400m Rio Olympic Games champion and world record holder, is second on points behind Lashon Merritt of the USA for the men's prize in the 400m. Unfortunately, the South African is not on the start list for the Thursday competition. The American is therefore almost assured to walk away with 40,000 US dollars at the end of the series in Brussels. Keshom Nyati, Channel of Sports, London. On to soccer news. Tabiso Kutumela has joined Bafana Bafana's teammates in Nelspreit after he was called upon to replace the injured prison Numalo of Ajax Cape Town. Kutumela of Orlando Pirates arrived at the Bafana camp on Monday night. He was part of South Africa's under-23 men's national team that recently went and competed at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Chipa United's Diamond Topola is expected in camp today to replace Rivaldo Kotsie who has been withdrawn from the camp due to illness. Topola will arrive together with overseas-based players Andile Jali from Belgium and Turkish-based Tukelo Rantie. The arrival of the trio will complete Ifrem Mashaba's 25-man squad that will be preparing for the two clashes against Mauritania and Egypt. South Africa wraps up the 2017 Cup of Nations qualifiers when they face Mauritania on Friday, 2nd of September at the Mbombela Stadium in Nelspreet. They will then travel back to Johannesburg to play the Pharaohs of Egypt in the 2016 Nelson Mandela Challenge on Tuesday, 6th September at the Orlando Stadium in Soweto. Meanwhile, Bafana Bafana aimed to beat Mauritania on Friday night at the Mbombela Stadium. The two nations meet in the final of AFCON 2017 qualifier, which is now a dead rubber after both failed to qualify for Gabon final. Pacing Gatlo has more. Mauritania almost sealed the fate of Bafana Bafana when they humiliated them 3-1 in their second AFCON qualifier last September. And while Bafana Bafana tried to rescue their qualifying campaign by beating Gambia 4-0 away and registering a credible 2 all draw away to Cameroon, it wasn't to be. That 3-1 defeat proved decisive and Bafana will be out to avenge it on Friday. We have to get the result because we're playing home. You know, we know how much South Africans are eager and coming. They will, they will be there in numbers to support us, you know. Coach Sheikh Mashaba has repeatedly said he'll use the upcoming matches to prepare for the 2018 World Cup qualifiers. Two more players will be called up to the Bafana Bafana squad to replace the Ajax Cape Town duo of Rivaldo Kutsia and Prince Numa Alua not available due to illness and injury respectively. And wrapping it up with cricket news.